you're listening to a podcast from St. Benedict's Table, a congregation of the Anglican Church of Canada located in Winnipeg, Manitoba. May only truth be spoken and only truth received. Amen. First of all, a wee bit of a confession. On the whole, I think that following the lectionary is a very good thing partly because it can take a preacher into texts that he or she would rather avoid. And it also keeps you from riding your favorite hobby horse. Larry actually talks about growing up in a Baptist church in which his pastor preached on the Epistle to the Romans for eight years. The lectionary saves us from such things. Sometimes, though, I find that it just makes sense to depart from one of the appointed readings, and this is one of those weeks. Our gospel reading tonight, the prologue to John's gospel, is actually one of three options for Christmas Eve and Christmas Day. Now, I'm of the rather firm opinion that the Bethlehem birth story is the one for Christmas Eve, And because it's St. Ben's, we have no liturgy on the 25th. The prologue to John's Gospel goes unread. Plus, the Gospel appointed for today is the story of the 12-year-old Jesus visiting Jerusalem with his parents, which is chronologically all out of sync, or at least it is to my little brain. You have the baby born on the 25th, and all of a sudden he's 12 the next Sunday, and then he's back to being an infant on the Feast of the Epiphany. It just puts a crick in my neck. And so, the shift. All of that aside, though, I do think that it's a really potent thing to read both Luke's story and John's more poetic and theological proclamation during these 12 days of Christmas. Luke gives us a narrative filled with details. Who was in power in the empire or the fact that it's shepherds who come and bear witness to this newborn child? Luke's story pops with a kind of an appeal. We can sometimes make it a little too cozy, overlooking the fact that it does tell of a young couple displaced by the whims of an empire looking for a taxation system, forced to resort to a stable for the birth of their baby, not an easy thing, yet still the narrative's appeal is undeniable. John, on the other hand, isn't looking to tell a story, but rather to say something about the story, all upper caps, that he so urgently needs to proclaim. In a real sense, John is wanting to tell us how the story all ends before he even begins telling it. To all who received him, he writes, who believed in his name, he gave power to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, or of human will, but of God. That's the punchline, you see. In Christ, through Christ, humanity is being recreated, redeemed, reclaimed, and renamed as the children of God. That's John's whole point. 
And wow, does he ever start his uh, prologue with a bang. In the beginning, he says. The opening words from the book of Genesis, which any Jewish reader would immediately have recognized. That takes a little bit of chutzpah, John, suggesting that the story you've got to tell is one parallel to the very creation story itself. But from there, it only gets bigger, bolder, and nervier as John continues, In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through Him, and what without Him, not one thing came into being. What has come into being in Him was life, The life was the light of all people. On this, the theologian and pastor David Loos comments that Jesus, according to John, has been a part of creation from the very beginning. What occurs now is that God's eternal word, God's reason, order, and very being is coming down to earth to take on human flesh. Jesus, according to John, has been a part of creation from the very beginning. Now, John is not the only one to make such a claim. It's there, particularly in the epistle to the Colossians, when Paul writes, Christ is the image of the unseen God, the firstborn of all creation. For in him all things in heaven and on earth were created, things visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or powers, all things have been created through him and for him. He himself is before all things, and in him all things hold together. It is quite a claim. It's pointing both John and Paul, pointing toward what would eventually unfold fully in the doctrine of the Trinity, namely that Christ has been a part of creation, a force in creation, part of the Godhead from the very beginning, not simply a later response to human brokenness and estrangement, but all along and eternally. And the Word, God's reason, order, and very being, became flesh, became human, and lived among us. The one who is, to borrow from Paul's language, the one who is before all things, and through whom all things hold together, was also one of us, and one with us. This is not, David Loos remarks, this is not the first time God has gotten involved in human history, of course. God has been at work in the world through covenant, law, judges, kings, and prophets. Yet now God is getting more personally involved as the very word of God takes on human flesh and dwells literally tabernacles with us in our own human form. John's prologue 
his version of the nativity story. His prologue is breathtaking in its assertions as to what is really happening in and through the birth, the life, the death and resurrection of Jesus. Breathtaking, but also maddening to many in that day who would have been pulling out their hair at the audacity of John's claims. You, John, you claim that Jesus of Nazareth is not just a teacher, a healer, and a prophet, but actually the incarnation or the enfleshment of God in the world. It's blasphemy. It's impossible. Maybe not just to the people of that day either. It remains no less audacious in our day to say that a child born to peasant parents in a stable in Bethlehem and then raised in Nazareth, a city of the most dubious reputation, that that child is at once the very God and creator become human. Then in the middle of the section that we heard read, there came what can seem like a bit of an insertion of another character into the prologue, almost out of nowhere. And it's talking about the Word, and this origin of the Word, and the fact that the Word has been all along, and is God, and is now one with us, and among us, and bringing light, and all of these things. And then all of a sudden it begins, there was a man sent from God whose name was John. That little section runs just a few short lines and then it shifts back to focus on the Christ, on the Word become flesh who dwelt among us and the light that he brought. And some biblical scholars, particularly in the 20th century, have wondered if this little section on John the Baptist might have been something of of an editorial addition. Maybe by John's own hand, maybe a little later by somebody else, but I'm not persuaded. I think that bringing in the figure of John the Baptist is very much in line with the force of John's whole prologue. He came as a witness to testify to the light so that all might believe through him, the prologue reads. And that places emphasis on John as witness, not as John the Baptist. The presence of John here notes Carolyn Lewis, particularly for our Christmas preaching, suggests that a critical response to Christmas is witness. Christmas is not over when the trees are put out to the curb. Christmas is just getting started for those who confess Jesus as God who has become flesh. Witness as a critical response to Christmas, which for Christians is just getting underway or maybe always getting underway. And what might it mean, what might it look like for us to practice such witness in light of Christmas? Well, here's a modest proposal. You know the generosity, the hospitality, compassion and kindness that surfaces for a couple of weeks around Christmas Day. The kind that has the mayor and his family volunteering at Siloam Mission for a day 
serving a meal to folks during the holiday, the kind that means the food shelves at Agape are over full, and they are right now. I took food in just a few days ago, and it was, wow, well, put it on the floor, there's no room. That's because it's in this particular little season. Ask them again in January. What about that kind of sense of of generosity and hospitality that has folks inviting one another over for meals? And perhaps with a particular eye to those who are alone at Christmas or for whom this might be a tough season. All of those bills slipped into Salvation Army Christmas kettles. All of those donations made to Mennonite Central Committee or hand in hand with Haiti as a gift and a gift on behalf of someone else, in someone else's name. All of those things are so good. What if we practiced such generosity and hospitality and compassion and kindness year-round to testify to the true light which enlightens everyone which has come into the world? Now, wouldn't that bear witness to what John is trying to proclaim in this prologue to his gospel, namely that in the word becoming flesh and dwelling among us, even the simplest things and the simplest folks are given this brand new importance and dignity. That's a modest proposal for Christmastide. Have a blessed and happy second week of Christmas. And may you be inspired to extend this season's spirit into the next season and beyond. In the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. You've been listening to a St. Benedict's Table podcast. For more information on our church or to provide support for our online work, visit us at stbenedictstable.ca.